on the first page of the handout, you'll see an outline of what we've gone through in Romans so far. And so the theme of Romans has to do with the righteousness of God. And so what we see is in the beginning of the book of Romans, the first 15 verses really focus upon the apostleship of Paul. Um, And the reason for that is sort of this idea that he's explaining the authority that he comes with. So he, as an authoritative messenger of God, is bringing the word of God. And so there's that doctrine of authority that we have, sola scriptura. And so he was coming, he was carrying new revelation, and now we have the complete revelation in scripture. And he also talks about his desire to come to Rome and to be able to share with them the gifts that he has from the Holy Spirit including that teaching that he has to be able to build each other up. And so we have the mission, which is Paul's part in the Great Commission of discipling the nations and bringing them into covenant and obedience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is focusing on the mission. He's focusing on the goal, which is to fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And so we like to call that the doxological focus. The doxa is the glory of God, which is also a way you can use that word to refer to faith. And there's an interesting connection there that the glory of God is known to us when we have faith. Right? So we see the glory of God, the invisible God, when we have faith. And so this idea that, that Paul is trying to accomplish the mission he's been placed on by Christ by seeking to fill the earth with the knowledge of God by filling the earth with his objective preaching of the word. So we get to verses 16 and 17, and we have the thesis of the whole book, which is, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So, pause. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Well, couldn't you say that the grace of God is the power of God to salvation? What about, isn't Christ the power of God to salvation? Well, we have Christ revealed in the gospel, and we have the grace of God revealed in the gospel. The gospel is the news about the grace of God of the Lord Jesus Christ extended to us. And so in the gospel, Christ is offered. He's laid forward. He's put out on display. And so when you believe the gospel, you are believing the Lord Jesus Christ. You're receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And there's an explanatory uh, clause afterward for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So everyone who believes, whether they're Jewish or whether they're Greek, and the Greeks are used to represent the Gentiles, right? So whether you're a Jew or from any other nation is the idea. So in other words, all the nations, the whole world, the same gospel is for every nation. And then verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from the objective preaching, the faith, once once for all time delivered to the saints, to the one who believes. And so it's from faith to faith. So the objective preaching is the faith, and you receive it, you believe it, and that's from faith to faith. And then he gives a proof text. He sets a pattern for us on how he's going to deal with the rest of the book. He says... For it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2 there. And so the idea there that the just shall live by faith is this idea that it's not by works that you're just. It's not by works that you have life. 
It's faith that is the instrument that gives you justice or righteousness, the righteousness of God. And so then we have the rest of the book is unpacking that, and there's multiple ways in which that term is used. So you have chapters 1 to 3, which teaches us that the righteousness of God in himself and the righteousness of his law, which shows his righteousness, makes it so that everybody's without excuse. And so chapters 3 to 5 show us if we're without excuse, how can we be saved? How can we be counted as righteous before God? And so the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ is imputed to the believer by faith alone. Chapters 6 through 8 give us the righteousness of God imparted in sanctification. So you're renewed in the inward man. So you're transformed. If you've been justified, there's this process of sanctification where the righteousness of God is made manifest by the reconstructing of the ruins of the temple that is your soul. Chapter 9 is the righteousness of God and his plan of predestination of all things for his ends or goals by his means at his initiation. And so it's an explanation of the justice of God and it deals with objections that try to say, well, it's unjust for God to do this. He can't predestine this or that. And the justice of God in predestining things is dealt with. So the righteousness of God. 10 to 11, the righteousness of God in his treatment both of Israel and of the nations is, is laid out. So a comparison of Israel and the nations. And so those things are laid side by side and God's righteousness in how he treats both is defended. So there's no claim that, oh, God has, has broken his promises to Israel. And then there's, in chapter 12, there's a change of focus. And the change of focus becomes the righteousness of God on display in the rational service of the saints. That they, as they have faith and then apply the faith in doing what God has commanded, are displaying the righteousness of God. And so chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is a hinge thesis. And it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the idea here, that there's a, the beseeching, the better word there is to exhort. It's a speaking in such a way as to give strength. So I strengthen you by my words, brethren, by referencing the mercies or grace of God that we've just been talking about for 11 chapters. Based upon that, in other words, out of gratitude, not for your justification, but because you have been justified, present your bodies now as a sacrifice, a thanksgiving sacrifice, a sacrifice that's holy, which means dedicated to God, a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. It's, it's in the way he's appointed, which means look to his law to see how you ought to offer yourself. And then, which is your rational service, a reasonable service. This is the reasonable thing to do. And also notice that this is by faith, right? Faith is not unreasonable. Faith is not opposed to reason. The only reasonable thing to do is to believe the revealed word of God. It is the only coherent philosophy, the only system of truth. It is coherent and nothing else is. It has meaning and nothing else does. Every other philosophy leads to skepticism, irrationalism, nonsense, meaninglessness. Nothing draws it all together. It makes life into an 
unbearable abyss. And so only Christianity, only the scriptures provide for us a system of truth that allows for a rational service, a reasonable service, and when you live by faith, when you understand the word, believe it, and apply it, then you are able to reasonably use your body. You are able to make your life into a sacrifice that is dedicated to the goal of the glory of God, and that is acceptable. Verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So notice how that relates back, right? The good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That relates back to the living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable. The, the connecting word there is acceptable. And it makes you go, okay, so how do I know what's acceptable? Well, by being able to prove what's good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So this idea that the will of God is perfect, it's acceptable, and it's good. You, how do you know it's good? The law of God. How do you know it's acceptable as an offering of sacrifice to God? You know what God does with unacceptable sacrifices? He does not accept them. Isn't that obvious? But so often, as Christians, we just think, well, you know, God's lucky that I've just given him anything because most people don't give him anything. God have mercy. The acceptable sacrifice that God demands is revealed in his law. And so, what is good? God has revealed it in his law. That's the standard. What's acceptable? God has told us what he wants, what he will accept in his law. And it's perfect. It's sufficient. We don't need to add anything to it. There's not, it's not insufficient. It's like, oh, we left out pilgrimages. <laughs> no, it's just go to Rome. We'll go up the stairs on our knees. We'll kiss the steps as we go. Right? That's not missing from the law of God. It's perfect. It's complete. It's sufficient. We don't have to add stuff. So that is the sacrifice that God wants is exactly what he's laid out. He's a pretty good writer. He can communicate with sufficient clarity to get his point across. So don't be conformed to this world. That you conform there is sort of this idea of getting pressed into a mold. And then, but be transformed. That's the we get the root word metamorphosis from the word transform there. Be transformed. Be 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 metamorphosized. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the way we go from caterpillar to butterfly, right, is the word of God is the thing that nourishes and transforms creates that beauty. It manifests the beauty. The, the truth makes us beautiful. And so the renewing of the mind, the, the mind being made new, right, this relates to the new man, right? How are we made a new man? Are you, you know, the, the Plymouth Brethren actually teach that you know, the old man was a different person, and what happens is there's a body snatcher, and the new man is a different soul thrown in there, and now there's literally a different person in your body when you're made a new man. Now, that's sort of like 
all the other places where the Bible talks about new, it has like old covenant and new covenant. People go, the old covenant, totally different covenant. New covenant, totally different covenant, not a point of connection. New heavens, new earth. New songs. I had to say something about exclusive song, but you thank you. So, new songs. The old and new is a transforming of the old into something new. There's a point of contact. So how are we made into a new man? We're made into a new man by the man being changed from dead to alive by the knowledge of God, which is eternal life. And then, so how is the covenant made new? Well, it's the changing of the ceremonies by the completing of them by Christ, and now we have a simplified new covenant worship. Okay, how are the heavens and the earth made new? By the removal of curse. Okay, how are the songs made new? By the fulfilling of all of the types and shadows in them, and we look back now with the completion of Christ, and so we sing the psalms as new songs. So all of these things, old and new, are not a literal ending of the old thing in a completion in a complete way and a starting of something totally new. It's always about transformation. And so renewal is the thing that helps to go from what was lacking to what's complete. And so we're conform we're not conformed to the world, we're transformed by the renewing of the mind. And when our minds are transformed, when our minds, when we have the truth dwelling in our hearts, what happens is now we have the ability to offer rational service because even though the word of God was sufficient before, now you individually, you subjectively, you personally can prove. The word was sufficient before, but now you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's why we need to meditate on the law day and night. Meditating on the law day and night makes it so that we can prove what's good. So, I wanted to catch those of you who are kind enough to come and visit with us up on what we've largely gone through. And please stand now for the reading of the text from Romans 14. Romans 14, verse 1. It's on page 2. And you'll have to do some fancy flipping to keep up and get through. Verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one who believes, he may eat all things. For one believes, he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has received him who are you to judge another servant to his own master he stands or falls indeed he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand you jump to page 4 get to the continuation of the text verse 5 one person esteems one day above another another esteems every day alike let each be fully convinced in his own mind he who observes the day observes it to the Lord he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, 
whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, the next part, the majority text has a different order. These are the verses that are, in most Bibles, put it, verses 25 to 27 of chapter 16. Okay, the majority of Greek manuscripts have this text here. Okay, so, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now we'll pause there. There's remaining text is all in the same section, but uh, for the sake of comprehension we'll pause there. I encourage you to meditate on that text by yourself, so please be seated. So that section there that we just read stops at the doxology. There's a continuation of the point about the strong bearing with the weak. So we get into Romans 14. The immediately preceding context, obviously, is Romans 13. Romans 13, you have the beginning where there's this section about authority, chapters, or chapter 13, verses 1 to 7 the duty to submit to civil magistrates who are godly and this idea that they're limited in their authority by the word of God. It's not a general command to obey anybody with a badge and a gun. It's a command to obey lawful commands. Then we have from verses 8 onward, there's a essentially a teaching that we shouldn't owe anyone anything except to love each other. We don't owe anybody anything except to love each other, which is not a statement that you can't borrow money. Though it is normally used for that. 
it is a statement that you should not accept any obligations except to love your neighbor. Then Paul explains how to love your neighbor. He lists out the second table of the law. How do you love your neighbor? By honoring lawful authority. That came right before. By not murdering. By not committing adultery. By not stealing. By not bearing false witness against your neighbor. And by not coveting. So he takes the second part of the Ten Commandments, the part that applies to your neighbor, and says that's an explanation of how you love your neighbor. And he says don't owe anyone anything except to obey the law of God toward them. That's what love is. Love is seeking the good of your neighbor. And love is seeking the good of the neighbor. How do you know what's good for your neighbor? Just like how you know what's good and acceptable and perfect in the will of God. The law of God. So now we get into 14. We've got these four verses. So that was quite the sprint for context. Stay with me. It's going to be good. Chapter 14, verse 1. Receive, we're on page 2, is the outline there. So receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So what does it mean to be weak in the faith? Well, if you're strong in the faith, does it mean you just have like really strong emotions when you hear the Bible read? Okay, well, so there's weakness in the faith, like this is boring, reading the Bible's boring. And that's not what the strength or weakness is. The strength of faith is when you believe more. The more of God's word that you understand and believe, the stronger your faith is. Right, so we have other places where there's this kind of comparison made. Jesus talks about faith the size of a mustard seed. Right, so how much faith do you need to be justified before God? Very, very, very little. Enormously small. Is that hard to understand? Enormously small? So very small. Very small faith necessary to be justified. Children. Infants have the faith necessary to be justified. The Holy Spirit imparts knowledge, the saving knowledge. And that ultimately comes down to this, that God has saved me by his mercy through the death of another. Now, after Christ came, the acknowledgement of who that Messiah is, Christ, we have an explicit statement of who it is. We know who it is. We have the name, the name above all names. So, but it's always been faith in the seed of the woman, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. But the strong faith is what we should all be striving for. We should, we should, we spend so much time trying to go, well, I mean, couldn't the person be saved? Sure, the person can be saved. You can go to any institution you want to, from PETA to a part of the papal dominion to any other false religious institution. You can go anywhere you want, and you know what? God can save you there. It's still sin for you to go to false religious institutions or to try to devote yourself to false duties. That's sin. Can God save you despite your sins? Of course. But is our goal to have weak faith? Are you trying to figure out how can I live and die with the minimum amount of faith? And so when we talk about things like evangelism, so often the goal is to figure out the minimum amount of faith that someone can get by. Well, the minimum amount of faith is defined for us in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul lays out the gospel. If you want the minimum, it's there. He declares the gospel, and he tells us it's about the work of Christ and the fact that Scripture's been given. We have the word as the authority. Okay, The work of Christ, and it's the authority of Scripture. That's the minimum faith. Do you have that? If you have that, 
then let's go on and let's grow. We go back to that, we return to that, we're reminded of that, but let's keep growing. Let's get a deeper knowledge of those things. Let's apply more. So what we have to do is pursue strength, and while growing in strength, we need to receive those who are weak, and we need to guard them, to nourish them, to care for them, to seek to not harm them, to bear with their burdens, to bear with their weaknesses, to be willing to not use our liberties so that we can bless them and help to give them strength. We can handle the battering of difficulty, if you're strong, better than the weak. And so you bear with the scruples of the weak. You bear with the difficulties of the weak. And you seek to figure out, how can I help to nourish them along to strength, not leave them where they are. So many times people preach through this and they'll talk about, there are those who are weak in faith, there are those who are strong in faith, and don't talk about it. Don't argue about the things. Just shush. Stay here. Give me your money. Shushy. That is not the way to build up the body. We need to debate things. We need to debate things. And it's not just officers. The body needs to debate things. But you should never debate a thing unless you can prove it. Here's what I mean by that. You should not seek to impose something on the conscience of another or, or tell somebody, hey, this thing is okay. You need to not feel like you can't do it. You should never tell somebody, don't do that. And you should never tell somebody, you must do this, unless you can prove it from the Bible. And so, receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. What are doubtful things? Not things that are revealed in the Word of God. And they might be doubtful to you, because you don't know what God's word says. So here's the thing. There are things that God's word says that you don't yet understand or believe. And you shouldn't argue them until you understand them and can show them. Some people like to just debate for debate's sake. right? There's this fun of like the wrestling that occurs. And so you should not argue, you should not dispute over doubtful things. So that means the stronger your faith is, the more content you're able to argue over. If you argue without being able to prove, you're just going to hurt people. Because you might persuade somebody of something, and you have no idea if it's true. So only when you have faith, only when you can prove from the objective revealed word, should you argue for a thing. So, we should receive those who are weak in the faith. We should receive them. We should receive them in multiple ways. We should receive them into church membership, which is why the standards for church membership are not the whole Westminster Confession of Faith. The Shorter Catechism is the judgment of the Westminster Assembly of what a Presbyterian church ought to use as the basis for admission to the table. Okay, so you go. Here's this little document, and I got one. So you go, this is fairly short, little booklet, roughly a tract, that you can teach somebody, and you say, use that to have people be received to the table. 
you have the larger catechism to help to develop people, and those are qualifications that this is the faith that officers ought to believe. And the Westminster Confession does that too. And you go, here's what we should teach. And so you're saying, here's a standard. This is what the church is confessing. It's teaching this. It's a summary of the teaching of Scripture. And you judge it by Scripture, right? It's not the authority. It's to be judged by the authority. But the idea is, is the church going to make progress over time, gathering out from the Word of God doctrines? Like, do we, Can we say like the doctrine of the Trinity is... Yes, that's, Bible. that's in the Bible. Can we, can we say that about the doctrine of justification? Can we say that about the doctrine of incarnation? How about sola scriptura? Can we, can we, what can we, where do we stop? Right? Where has the church developed to? And so I want to posit to you that the Lord Jesus Christ matures his church over time. And as he matures his church over time, he helps them to have a more full confession. And that more full confession is something that the church ought to bind itself to as it's proven and so that binding itself as it's proven through covenanting, through swearing, and then there's also still those who are weak. And the goal is to figure out what is necessary in terms of the weakness to be admitted, which is not the same as what's necessary to be saved. Or you can be saved and not give evidence to other people. Somebody can be saved, be given a saving faith, and die five seconds later. How much evidence was that person able to give? But to admit to the church, you have to have other things. So, for example, the infants, the, the, the believers of, the children of believers, we admit because we believe they're covenant children in the same way that circumcision was used for the admission of Jewish children into the old covenant church. But coming to the table and coming to Passover both require catechesis or the ability to answer questions. And so, for example, the children who were sitting at the table in the Passover, they, it said this, when your son says to you, what is this your service? Not what's this service that we're doing, what's this your service? What's the service you're doing? And so the idea there is he's there, but he's not partaking. And so he's wondering, what is this? And so you explain it to him before you admit him to the table. And so there is a level of explanation and the ability to show back by explaining back that's required for admission to the table. So admission to the church, admission to the table, those are things, and you have to receive those who are weak into the church, and you have to receive those who are weak to the Lord's table, because it's one of the instruments the Lord uses to strengthen. Okay, so we should also receive them into our affection. We should love them. We should love the weak. First John uses the analogy of little children, young men, and fathers. And it says of the little children that they know God, that their sins are forgiven. It says of the young men that they fight and overcome the evil one. And it says of the fathers that they know God. Think of the beauty of that, this idea of what's the point of relationship between the immature and the mature both have the knowledge of God. Now the fathers have a deeper knowledge of God. It says of them that they know God twice. There's this little list that says two things about each one. And for the fathers it says twice they know God. Now there's a thing called a Hebrew, there's a Hebraism which is a, a literary device in Hebrew that's, that's called um, parallelism. You still see it in Greek but in the Psalms and stuff like that you'll see it over and over again where you say the same thing twice. And that's for emphasis. So why does the father know 
God and what does a father know God and a father know God? It's, a, it's an emphasis. They have a deep knowledge of God. So the maturity occurs because there's been lots of renewing of the inward man. The knowledge of God is deep there. So we're to receive those who are weak in the faith, not for the purpose of disputing over doubtful things. Okay, but we bring these people in, they come into the church, we should love them, we should receive them in our affections, and we should receive them into the fellowship, which does not mean just like watching football. Right? What is fellowship? Fellowship is working together toward a goal. Right? The most popular example I can think of is the fellowship of the ring. The fellowship of the ring was not, you know, Frodo and some other hobbits and some elves and dwarves and a couple of humans going to sit down and eat Cheetos and play a board game, right? What were they doing? They were trying to accomplish a mission. They were trying to destroy the ring, right? So this idea of the fellowship is working together. So that's the idea of the word fellowship. Now, the sharing together in, uh, the, the working together towards the goal. So we're to receive those who are weak in the faith, and we're not supposed to dispute with them about doubtful things, but instead... What should disputation look like? So look at uh, point 1D on page 2. Disputation is good when showing what can be proven from the word of God by explicit statement or necessary inference, but not when it is over things that are not provable. So how do you prove things? You prove things by going to the scripture text and looking for the meaning according to the type of literature, by looking at the grammar to see am I abusing this text or not, you look at the context, and that context is, you know, where does the sentence fit in the paragraph? Where does the paragraph fit in the book? Where does the book fit in the whole of Scripture? And then you're also trying to see, does this contradict in any way some other part of Scripture that I know, how I'm interpreting this? Does it fit together? Right? So that's the literal, grammatical, contextual, and logical reading of the Bible. And if you can memorize those four words, that helps you to, to kind of run through the process when you're trying to deal with the scripture and how to interpret it. Now, so disputes that are profitable are going to be over things that we have faith in. And I want you to memorize a key word, superstition. What is superstition? Superstition is when you believe things that you don't have any warrant for in the word of God. If you believe something and you made it up or you received it by human tradition or an angel of light told you, if you receive something and it's not in the complete word of God, it's not demonstrable by an explicit text or by necessary inference, like logicking it out, like rigorously logicking it out. If you can't do that, the thing you're believing is superstition. What is faith? Faith is what we can prove from the word of God. Now, in a narrow sense, faith is, is, is anything you believe, right? Whatever you believe, that's your faith. But it's not faith that's substantial. It's not faith in the sense of a biblical faith, unless you can prove it from the word of God. So do not dispute over superstition. Do not dispute over superstition. But you ought to argue over the truth that you can prove 
from God's word. So verse 2, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who is weak is weak because he believes he can only eat a certain set of foods, but he's actually, according to the law of God, allowed to eat a larger set of foods. It's not weakness if it's actually a limit that God's word sets. Think about this. Was it a weakness of faith in the Old Covenant era for Jews to only eat kosher food? That was strong faith. It was sin to eat food that was unclean before Christ died. So, they were exercising strong faith when they were eating kosher food in the Old Covenant. The eating of all things. Would it have been strong faith to go eat pig in 400 B.C.? No. Eating pig as a Jew in 400 B.C. would have just been sin. It would have been obnoxious non-faith. It would have been superstition. So, the question is not are there any limits on eating? Right, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. So it's possible to eat in a way that's sinful, right? Because if you don't eat to the glory of God, that's sin. So there is a type of eating that's right and a type of eating that's wrong. One believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. And so what we have is, if you don't believe what's been objectively revealed, and then you act, that's sin for you. Right, so you may have the objective right in the word of God to do a thing, but if you don't understand where the scriptures say that and believe it based upon the scripture, it's sin for you. So we should not push weaker brothers to do an action before they're convinced that the word of God says it's good. Because if we do that, we're pushing them to sin. Now, on the strong side, when we are weak, if we go, I'm not sure that I can do this, right? Alcohol is a common thing. People go, I'm not sure that I can drink alcohol without it being sin, okay? So you go, okay, then don't impose that on other people if you're weak. Unless you could prove that it's sin to drink alcohol in all cases. Now, you know I didn't believe that because I... Bought a lot of alcohol for everybody to drink at Reform God. So, it's not my position. We use wine in the Lord's Supper. Like Jesus. <laughs> now, at the same time, there are some people who believe that it's sin to drink alcohol. But if they can't prove it, then that's a weakness of faith. And if they try to impose it on others, that's the tyranny of the weaker brother. And so there are times when you, not only sh you know, is it okay to argue with a weaker brother, there's times when you have to argue with a weaker brother. And the have to is when they try to impose it by a rule of the church. Okay, when the use of the public authority of the church is imposed, when there's an attempt to discipline, for example, or to teach publicly a thing that is a limit that God has not set. So one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, 
this only vegetables thing. Where does this come from? Because the last time that man was left to only eat vegetables was before Noah. Okay, so you see in, in the garden, in, in, in the garden before the fall, before there's death, the plants were given for man to eat and also for the animals to eat. Now after the fall, there's obviously you have sin going on, and so human beings may well have been eating animals before God authorized Noah to eat animals. But unless it was authorized by God, it was sin, so the authority wasn't granted. And you also may well have cannibalism occurring. People are murdering each other left and right. The earth is full of blood in the pre-flood world. So the practice of man is not the determiner of what is right and what is wrong. So point C here, we have the list of verses that kind of go through a lot of the food development in the history of the Bible. Genesis 1 to 2, Adam's given the right to eat herbs and rule animals. Genesis 3 and 4, you have animal sacrifice. You have, you have animal sacrifice where after the curse uh, is given and you have the first giving of the gospel, you have God giving coverings of animal skin. Right? I don't know about you, but my understanding is that animals die when their skin is ripped off. <laughs> and so those animals seem to have been killed. And so there's the institution of animal sacrifice there and the giving of the tunics of the skins of the animals as a symbol for the righteousness of Christ covering the believer. And in chapter 4, you have Cain offering grain and you have Abel offering sheep and sacrifice to God. Now, animal sacrifice exists. Genesis 7, Noah receives two of each kind of animal, male and female, and then it says that he receives seven of each kind of clean animal to take under the ark. And so, clean animals, interesting. All of a sudden, where does this category come from? So, is this the first time that God is revealing the difference between clean and unclean animals? Is that, is that how God is giving the distinction? And then we have, in Genesis 8 and 9, uh, you have you know, the ending of the flood, and Noah is given the right to eat animals. You also have the institution of the civil magistrate there, the giving of the sword. And so, as we go past Genesis 8 and 9, you, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you have the laws that explain kosher food. And then, you have lots of stuff in between, but you get to Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 17, and you have the famous time when, annual, when Daniel is, is you know, enslaved, made a eunuch, and you have his three friends also. And so the four of them set in their heart to obey God, even in Babylon. And it says of them that they were not willing to eat the king's meat or drink his wine. Now, the reason for not being willing to eat the meat, well, it could have been that it's kosher, or not kosher. You know, maybe it's pig. But what about the wine? Why not drink the wine? Well, the reason for the wine, you know, wine's kosher. So the reason for the wine would be that there's something about it where the way it's used that makes it polluted, unclean. And so that pollutedness there is the offering of the wine to false gods. This is, this is wine that's been sacrificed to false gods. And it is forbidden to eat foods or drink 
drinks that have been sacrificed to idols. And so Daniel and his friends refuse to eat the meat or drink the wine, and they ask permission to only eat vegetables. And so when we see the idea of the weaker brother only being willing to eat vegetables, I suggest to you that what we're looking at here is either a matter of kosher, because there's not an ability to find meat that is clean because of the context, or it's going to be meat that's dedicated to idols, and whereas leaves tend to be less frequently offered to God, or false gods. So most false religions don't have elaborate ceremonies of sacrificing the leaves and the grains to their gods. Uh, Islam, for example, you have the meat being sacrificed to their false god. Um, there is a sacrifice. The halal is a process where they kill the animal and sacrifice it to their false god. And so that food is dedicated to an idol. If you're aware that food is halal, it's dedicated to an idol. So the question here, right, what is happening with Daniel? Is there a relationship there to what's happening here in Romans? In Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, you have Peter being told to kill and eat in terms of unclean animals. And then he defends himself in Acts chapter 11 to people who are Jewish Christians going, how did you do this? Like, Why, why would you go and eat the Gentiles and you know, why would you eat their food? And he defends himself, saying, I was told to do this by Jesus. So he's explaining that there's a changeover from the kosher laws applying. 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, or sorry, sorry, Acts 15 has a famous council where it lays out four laws, and three of them relate to food. The, the four laws are not to eat blood, not to eat animals that are killed in such a way as to preserve the blood in them, so that when you're eating it, you're eating the blood. And modern butchery does not involve that. You cut a cow in half, but blood doesn't stay in too well when you cut an animal in half. Then there's not eating things that are polluted to idol, by idols, and then there's not committing sexual uncleanness. You go, how do these things fit together? There's two major explanations of Acts 15. The, the one, you know, Calvin gives this, he says... Acts 15 is about how to not offend Jewish Christians in their state of weakness. And so the council at Jerusalem is saying, don't do these things to avoid offending the Jews while we're helping them to grow in the maturity of the faith. Well, I don't know about you, but it is my understanding that sexual uncleanness is an obligation on all of us whether or not we're around Jews. We're, we're not to participate in sexual uncleanness. So interpreting it that way makes no sense. Now, John Calvin was a great man. John Calvin is someone whose work I get to build on. I have the glorious luxury of living in peace and ease and getting to read John Calvin while eating scones and drinking tea. Right? I get an easy life, and John Calvin was writing with a furious, furious, printing things as they're getting done. I mean, he wrote a catechism, and he literally was writing a page handing the page off, and somebody was printing it without it being edited, and he starts to write the next page, right? Like, John Calvin is a great man who did great service, and if he's wrong about something, it does not diminish the glory of that father of the faith. He is a great man. And so, we have some places 
a surprisingly few places where the man seems to have been wrong. And I would posit to you that Acts chapter 15, his interpretation, is one of them. And so, in theonomous circles, what you tend to find is the viewing of Acts 15 and the four laws there as being a restatement by the council at Jerusalem of the four categories that are given to strangers in Israel. Okay, so you have all these ceremonial laws, and the ceremonial laws that exist are things like kosher laws and, and you know, don't wear clothing that's got mixed fabric and, and you know, don't plant different types of plants together. These are all holiness laws. But there are four categories that we're told the Israelite needs to do this and also the stranger who is with you. And those four categories are don't eat blood, do not eat animals with the blood in them, don't use things that are polluted by idolatry, and then what's that category of sexual uncleanness? Then you have the establishment of the laws that tell us how close of a relative should you not marry by blood and by marriage. So those are the laws of consanguinity and affinity. Right? Consanguinity with blood and affinity. Those are connected by a relationship of love, in other words, marriage. And so the four categories there in Acts 15 are the same as the ones that are supposed to apply to the Israelite and also to the stranger in Israel. So when we get here and we're talking about the food, right? you look at verse 2, and verse 2 says, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. And people take that and they say, Ah, eating all things. Therefore, I can eat literally everything I have tried. No, fat jokes don't work. Okay. So, you can eat literally everything. Or, is there a limit? And the people come into this and they say, You cannot say that there are any limits on eating because this text says you can eat everything. The strong in faith can eat everything. Therefore, I can eat blood sausages that are dedicated to Baal. <laughs> right? And so that, that interpretation, I posit to you, does not make sense in light of Acts 15. Also, you'll find 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. You have the Apostle Paul arguing about this and he ends it by saying, if you eat food dedicated to idols, you're eating food that's dedicated to demons. You're participating in the table of demons. There's some earlier parts that look like he's giving permission. What he's doing is he's saying, okay, you think you have the right to eat anything? I'll tell you what, we need to bear with the weak and we need to be careful to not hurt them with our rights. By the way, I have the right to eat for doing gospel work. And you know what? I haven't got paid by you. So you didn't let me eat for my gospel work, and that was a right that I had to eat. And I gave that up to not hurt you because I didn't take the money so you couldn't say that I was trying to profiteer off of you. By the way, you shouldn't eat at the table of Christ and the table of demons. And if you eat at the table of the temples to the false gods, you're eating at the table of demons. Don't do that. That's the line of argument he goes through. Okay? That's how you fit it all together. And he does the same thing, by the way, with authority relating to women. He goes, you know, with the head covering... You know, if you wear a head covering, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't pray or prophesy without a head covering. And then he says, and also, 
by the way, in the assembly, women shouldn't speak. So how do those line up? Can you speak if you have a head covering on? Or is it the idea that you shouldn't speak, and if you are trying to speak, you need to get a head covering on, and when you get a head covering on, you're reminded that you're not allowed to speak because you're under authority. Right? So the, he's showing how those things would lead to an internal contradiction. That's his style in 1 Corinthians. That's what he does over and over again. So, some people think the head covering is long hair. Some people think it's a fabric thing. I'm not going to go into that right now. Now, so you see that methodology. In Galatians chapter 2, you have the apostle Paul rebuking Peter when he goes back to eating not with Jews, or sorry, not with Gentiles, but only with the Jews. And he rebukes him because those Jews are trying to say, hey, you can't eat with Gentiles and you can't eat non-kosher food. And so Paul views that as a denial of the gospel because it's a denial of what has already been accomplished in Christ. He hey, the change of the covenant is a change that shows that Christ has come and completed the work. So he picks a fight over food. That proves that we're not supposed to avoid all fights about food. Hebrews goes through the detail of this, and there's an interesting passage in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus sends letters to seven churches, and in two of them, he rebukes them for eating food dedicated to idols. So there's the major passages. There's another one in Colossians. It's very similar to the Romans text. Those are the major passages that have to do with food. So how do we make all that fit together? We have to see that Paul is talking about the ability to eat food that's kosher or not kosher. He is not saying it's okay to eat blood. He's not saying it's okay to eat food dedicated to idols. He's not saying it's okay to eat animals in a way that have had the blood preserved in them so that you're able to take the, the blood in with it. He is saying we can eat food that's not kosher. And the context makes sense because he's dealing with a place where there's Jewish believers and there's Gentile believers. And it's early church. So let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Right? Whether you're a Jew who has been taught from your childhood to only eat kosher, or whether you're a Gentile who has never had that law imposed upon you, you need to realize in the New Covenant era that these Gentiles are allowed to eat non-kosher. And the Jews, they're also allowed to eat non-kosher, but the weakness of their faith is something to bear with. So let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. People take this verse and they try to make it mean something else. They try to say, hey, if you think something's sin, don't do it. But if somebody else thinks something's not sin, don't judge them. Can you see how that might be abused? Could that be extrapolated out to sexual sins? Has that been extrapolated out to sexual sins? If we interpret the text this way, we are making a gaping hole that destroys our ability to have any standard of behavior at all in the church. Church discipline goes away. So this is, you go, you know, why am I going through so much detail about the food text? Because the food text has turned into the 
anything goes text. This is very specifically only about things that the Bible actually allows and the things that the Bible actually allows you should be willing to give up your rights to not offend your weaker brother until he's been made strong. That is what this text is about. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. The one who is strong is actually believing what has been revealed. The one who is weak is failing to believe some of the explicit statements or necessary inferences of what has been revealed. Verse 4. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. We're not permitted to judge except by the standard that God has given, right? How, how can you judge a person and have it not be sin? Only if you're judging them by the word of God. And that means that you're not actually judging them. Jesus has judged them. And you're applying the judgment he's made. You're agreeing with the judgment, the, the judgment of Jesus. And that applies in church discipline, and that applies in our ordinary life. The church is called to apply the standard of God's word so that the judgment of the church is the judgment of the master. And we can say, like Matthew 18, that Christ is with us in the judgment. Conflict has to be chosen carefully. And so the stronger brother, listen, if you think you're strong, here's your job. Your job is to only pick fights where you think you already agree and then one level above that. So if you think we don't agree that the Bible is the word of God, you try to fix your effort on that. And you don't start to argue about you know, whether or not you should celebrate Christmas. You go to the Bible is the word of God. And when you're arguing about the Bible is the word of God, if there's agreement there, then you can move on. You go, oh, great, we agree about how we know things. Well, let's talk about the content. So the next thing is, who is God? And what is man? We have the details about those things. So we go from scripture into metaphysics, the nature of reality. And then we go into ethics. So there's this process of looking at things. And the strong one needs to be trying to find the most basic point of disagreement and go there. But here's the thing about weaker brothers. Weaker brothers like to pick fights that are all over the place. And so the stronger brother's job is to figure out how to talk about those things without hurting the faith of the weaker brother and to figure out how to connect it down to the point of disagreement that's more basic. So if you have a systematic understanding of the scripture truth, if you have apologetic skill, you're going to be able to take the arguments about all the things and connect them down and find the place that's most basic where you disagree and try to get that resolved so you can start to build up together. And one of the glorious things that we have is the Westminster Confession of Faith orders things from more basic to less basic. And so if you want to know, go look at the chapters. Go look at the table of contents there. Scripture, the definition of God and the Trinity. It's going to go to the decree of God. It's going to go to creation and providence, right? And so you're going to, you're going to see there from more basic to less basic. And so if you're not really sure how to do that, go 
study the order that our forefathers in the faith have done that. And here's the other interesting thing. In history, arguments tend to go from more basic to less basic because that's the way things work. So if you study the history of a subject, you'll find the early fights are the fights about the most basic things. What's the canon of scripture? How about the doctrine of Trinity? How about the doctrine of the Incarnation? That's the order that the fights in the church went in history. And so those things together, the history of the church and the ordering of the confession are really helpful tools for us to see the organizational order that we want to get so that we can, as stronger brothers, help weaker brothers to deal with things in a useful way that will actually be resolving things as opposed to as opposed to fruitless debates and arguments over doubtful things. So comments, questions, objections from voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching on the race. I wanted to just ask a question of application. So the, the, the example that I think we see of broad evangelicalism with, with alcohol. Um, mm -hmm. So would the way to apply this be in terms of, of alcohol? If, 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 uh, if I believe that, that the scripture gives me liberty to drink alcohol and my brother does not, that he believes that it's a sin to drink alcohol, I, I certainly should not try to, I should not say, like, I should try to persuade him to believe the truth and to be able to demonstrate to where he can now demonstrate and have faith that it's okay to drink alcohol. I should not try to, to encourage him to drink alcohol until that point. What about me drinking alcohol in his presence? Is that a stumbling block that we should avoid? And of course, we, we, we would apply alcohol to any sorts of, of issues like that. So I just wanted to ask that as a Yeah, so generally speaking, if somebody is a brother, a weaker brother, I think we should avoid doing the thing that would be an offense to them in their presence. And generally speaking, and we, we and always speaking, we do not want to pressure them to do something that they think is sin, right? So no peer pressure to drink, right? Um, and and so yes, you're looking for an opportunity to talk to them about that doctrine but you don't want to engage on it unless you think that there's already agreement about the more basic points of doctrine, like how do you determine what's right or wrong, uh -huh. you know? So is the law of God the standard or not? Wonderful, thank you. Great. Mr. Courtney? Um, just to sum up, uh, if I understand you correctly, if I have a disagreement with a brother uh, when I approach them and we talk it over, it's best to begin from the points where we do agree and then move to where we disagree. And that way there's the foundation of love and unity there uh, is preceding um, disharmony. Whereas if I go with just, oh, here's where you're wrong, and that, that there isn't um, that uh, foundation of unity there. Right, so excellent, yes. Yeah, so we should seek to, when we're arguing with brothers over points of doctrine, our goal is to find where do we agree, where does, that where does the agreement stop, and to then try to go from there. And that way we can, we can find the way our reasoning separates and avoid fruitless arguing, right? And it also helps to reduce the contentiousness of it because you've already got all this agreement that you're, you're dealing with. And so I think that, um, you know, for example, if you're arguing with a Baptist, one of the things you want to do is you want to find out, okay, are you covenantal or are you dispensational? 
right? And so arguing over the covenants is going to be where you start to where you start to figure out where the disagreement is. And then if they're covenantal, you go, okay, well, do you think that everything before the new covenant was a covenant of works or a covenant of grace, right? And so you're you're gonna you're gonna discuss those things. You're gonna try to figure out how do we view those things because that controls how we view what circumcision is and, and what baptism is and how they relate. Any other? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've taught us about weaker and stronger brothers. I ask that you would help us to uh, be patient and not tyrannical in our weaknesses. I ask that you would help us to be patient and not harming where we are strong. Father, I ask that you would help us to grow in unity together and to grow in unity in the truth and not in superstition. Father, we thank you that you've given to us your objective word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.